0: Welcome, everyone, to this edition of the EC Insights Podcast. We're joined today by Gene Hinkle, Managing Director of Energy Consulting's Power Economics team. Welcome, Gene. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Our topic for this podcast is the growth of renewables integration into grids around the world. So, Gene, uh, describe Energy Consulting's experience in conducting renewables integration studies. Where have we conducted them? What are some of the most notable ones?
1: Sure. Sure um we've been doing renewable integration studies large-scale renewable integration studies since about 2005. Um, really covered most of the u.s now we've just wrapped up the study looking at all of canada Uh, did uh, a lot of work in hawaii as well as uh, barbados and you know really starting to do the work globally vietnam cambodia Um, one of the things that we've learned is that there's really no hard limit to the amount of integration that a system can handle Um, And, you know, that's one of the the highlights that comes out of all of our studies. And and with each study, we really try to expand the boundaries and try to stretch the system as far as we can to see if we do actually hit that limit. Uh, For example, in the first integration study back in 2005, it was from New York. Uh, New York came to us saying, we want to see if we can integrate about 300 megawatts of renewables. Uh, And what our study showed is that... um, we can actually, the system could actually handle up to 3,000 megawatts, and that really wasn't even the limit. That that was the limit going to where, you know, to the to the edge where you may have to start doing mitigations to the system or change the operations, but it would be somewhat, rel- you know, relatively easy to integrate 3,000 megawatts rather than the 300. And, you know, they've continued to, to include or in, install new renewables uh, in the system currently. So
0: That's great. You, you talk about the fact that you know the major takeaway is there there's not a hard limit and power grids can accommodate large amounts of of solar and wind what happens to the grid when wind and solar plants start to increase in size and number so we get you know this takeaway and you know people start to put more wind and solar on their systems what happens sure um so what we see happening uh,
1: of course the the renewable energy is free fuel right so it's a resource wind the sun Um, you know no cost there so they're free resources basically from a variable cost perspective so when you start to integrate those resources into the system you start to see the conventional generation the fuel burning generation start to back down to lower levels than than typically used to Um, so from that perspective the operators really have to start looking at their fleet understanding what those impacts are you know they're, they're, they're basically backing down they're running less you know understanding if they have the capabilities for that um, and really start to look at how they currently operate the system and how they're going to need to operate it. And that's something that comes out of our studies as well. We really look at the, you know, the standard, the typical benchmark operations versus what happens in the future with increased penetration of renewables. Um, so so that, that's something that, that happens. Um, we also see uh, transmission. Uh, you know, typically, you know, in a high wind area, there's not a lot of people living there, so the load is light. Uh, so there's a need for new transmission to be built, so we, we analyze that as well. What is the optimal transmission build-out to deliver as much of that renewable energy to the load as possible? Um, we've recently uh, determined that the standard um, transmission-type study, uh, where you kind of like use a transmission model, you load all the renewable energy into it, and then you look at how that impacts the system, is not sufficient anymore with the increased penetration. So you really need to link up the, the transmission model as well as the production cost model and do a round trip um, analysis, feeding the transmission information into the production cost model and, and then sending it back into the transmission model. Because uh, otherwise, the, what we've discovered is that the, you, you build way too much transmission when, when not necessary.
0: Uh, what's the downside of building too much transmission
1: uh the cost so the 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 transmission cost is really the big issue there um so if you can if you can minimize the amount that you need to deliver a certain amount of energy you know some curtailment may be good it may be economic to have to curtail some of that renewable energy Uh, but uh, the the cost really is an impact uh, as well as the siting so so getting a new transmission built a transmission line sited. Uh, you know, the, the old saying, not in my backyard. Um, so by minimizing the amount of, uh, of lines or, or HVDC cables or whatever the solution is, uh, minimizes all those, all those issues, cost as
0: well as the sighting. One of the things that uh, we've heard folks in the industry talk about is the need for renewables. You know, you hear the thermal units backing down to provide system support. Talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, sure. So um, as the renewables start or the renewables start to back down, the conventional generation, uh, they're operating less. Uh, they're making less money. So there's a risk that they they may uh, cease to operate, um, as well as they they you know may have a certain operating point that they can back down to. Where if they can back down a little bit further, uh, you may be able to take on more energy, more renewable energy. Um, so, with that happening, you know, certain things need to have A system has to be reliable. You know, there's the one day and 10 years of outage criteria that most systems build out to. Um, so, if you have the risk of the, the generation, the conventional generation backing down, running less, energy prices are lower. Um, there has to be some sort of mechanism to pay them uh, to to keep them there to keep them around for liability so maybe it's increasing the capacity payments that they may receive or uh, also paying them for ancillary services that are not conventional so like california is not looking at like a flexibility type ancillary service so if the generation is flexible they'll get an additional revenue source for that uh,
0: that service to help accommodate the the increase in solar It sounds like these are some of the must-haves. What are some of the enablers then of putting more solar and wind onto the grid? Um, The number one, wind forecast, wind renewable forecasting. So having that,
1: um, you know, going in blind is never a good thing, right? So you want to know at least a forecast of what you can expect from the wind and solar. Um, So that's a huge enabler. He has huge, huge additional cost savings, curtailment reduction. Um, you know, We talked about flexibility a few minutes ago. Uh, flexibility is very important. So what your thermal fleet looks like now um, may need to change or you may need to operate them in more of a flexible ma- manner. So being able to cycle, ramp quickly, back down lower. So all that, uh, those are keys. Um, spatial diversity. Uh, in our PJM study, uh, we ran a couple cases. So we ran um, a case looking at the best sites. And when we looked at the best sites in the PJM system, they're mostly in the Midwest near Chicago, the Chicago area. So they're very concentrated. Um, so you imagine um, uh, the wind dropping, right? So if they have a lot of wind farms in one area and the wind in that particular area drops out, then you get a lot of variability. So if you're able to spread those across PJM in this example, uh, the variability is less and you also, um, you know, uh, can, can, can get a higher capacity value from them. So you can, you can count on them more reliably.
0: Okay, so talk about the, the demand side, the load side. Are there things that we can do, uh, you know, on the consumer side that can help enable the larger integration of renewables? Um, From the consumer
1: side, um, so, for example, if you have an issue where um, you were forecasting more renewables than actually, you know, than you actually were produced during the time of need, um, if there's demand, dispatchable demand out there. So, you know, if you have like a a hot water, electric hot water heater program, so if you if you come up short on generation and you can start cycling those hot water heaters off, um, that that will help the system operator to get through that that point where there there was a under forecasting. or, or, sorry, Um, over-forecasting. You know, and, you know, even from the the demand side of people installing uh, solar on their rooftops, if they, you know, make sure they have the best technology that the utility can control them, uh, that they're visible to the utility, that you report it to the utility, That's also will help them to understand, you know, what their net load is based on all that, uh, that distributed solar being built and integrated.
0: Okay, and one of the things that is interesting... I think, to, to a lot of folks in this industry is the fact that, you know, certainly in the United States and probably other developed markets, right, the, the infrastructure was built predominantly at the bulk scale for thermal generation, things that weren't variable or necessarily intermittent. And so were the markets and grid codes that accompany that infrastructure. Can you talk a little bit about what can what needs to happen and what should happen in the markets and grid code space to be able to enable renewables?
1: Sure. Um, so what, exactly what you said. You know, we go into these studies and we, and we talk, start talking to the utilities in the region or if we're doing a study for the utility, um, really trying to understand what their grid code is and, and how renewables fits into that. And a lot of times, um, you know, it, it wasn't written for renewable energy. So what we do is we, we take a step back, we look at the grid code, we try to understand, okay, what, what could potentially limit the, the integration, what could help. Um, and then we work with the, the utilities to, to be, get a better understanding of that. We, we did that in our Barbados study. So they provided us our, their draft grid code that they had modified for renewables. But because of our experience that we have, um, one of our colleagues, Nick Miller, was able to, to look through that and say, okay, well, these bullets may hinder renewable integration. These will help. Um, you know, this may be some changes that you might want to make to your grid code, uh, and, you know, here's an example of something that we did elsewhere and, you know, you should really consider this as part of your grid code as well. So we're really able to help them. And they came back, um, you know, the Barbados example, they originally were thinking that they, you know, nine, nine megawatts of distributed solar was kind of their hard point, their limit. Um, but with the grid code changes and our study work, you know, we were able to show that they could reliably handle up to 20 megawatts. And, you know, that may sound small. But it's a 210 megawatt peak load system in an island, so they don't have, they can't rely on their neighbors. Um, it's a, it's a small peak load system, so that much uh, penetration, uh, you know, could be 50, 60 uh, percent instantaneous integrate or penetration at any time. So,
0: wow, so you were able to double almost what they expected to achieve. Yeah,
1: and and again, that wasn't even really the hard limit. Um, with some some mitigations and some other changes, they could go further, which we're doing follow-on work for them now actually looking at that
0: so those are some of the things that can help bring renewables online what are some of the things that get in the way of bringing more renewables uh, onto the system
1: uh yeah so uh flexibility is a big thing so if you are in a system where your generation isn't very flexible you know and you know you're not willing to add any flexible generation that certainly can limit the amount of renewables that the system can handle um, you know, we like to call it the old rules of thumb. If you have a lot of uh, uh, operating rules that you've kind of done for t- the utilities done for 20 years, um, and you know they, they haven't looked at changing those rules, so maybe you run your combined cycles all hours of the day. Um, of course, that's going to hinder the integration um, and even um, the policy. So, you know, is there policy out there that will that will incentivize uh, renewables to be built? uh, and come online and, and, you know, make them even more economic than they already are.
0: So one of the new services slash products that GE launched at AWEA this year and was presented by our Matt Richwine was multi-plant coordination controls. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, you know, what are some of the issues related to not having control area cooperation? You know, uh, why is that a bad thing for, uh, you know, integrating more renewables, wind in particular, onto the grid? Sure.
1: Um, out in the west, the western part of the US, for example, um, there's a lot of balancing areas. So if you imagine um, a large balancing area like PJM, you have multiple states, you have that spatial diversity, uh, you have a lot of different types of generation that can help you know, to accommodate variability, for example. Uh, if you have a lot of balancing areas, they're all trying to balance themselves. So I think there's 40 balancing areas out in the west. Um, so each one is carrying their own reserves, their own operating reserves, spinning reserves regulation. Um, they're, they're not uh, factoring in transfers between the neighbors, so they, they truly are trying to balance themselves. So with that coordinate coordination and being able to use the, the neighbors and, and work together, the systems working together, uh, you're able to accommodate more renewable energy. Uh, the costs are less because now you're carrying less reserves, maybe, uh, and um, you know, being able to rely on each other to, to handle any challenges that may, may, may exist.
0: It just occurred to me, and to jump back to what you were talking about a second ago, uh, with markets and grid codes being enablers for for renewables, Uh, one of the things that's often talked about is preparing the market and developing a market for ancillary services for wind and the the benefits that wind provides in that market. Uh, Just describe a little, what are ancillary services, number one, and then number two, what are some of the ancillary service benefits that renewables provide?
1: Sure. Um, So ancillary services are all the extra components that you need to keep your system reliable so regulation keeping the load and generation in balance you know um, ramping being able to ramp quickly um when need uh need be so that would be like spinning reserve so so keeping your generation your conventional generation back down then it's higher operating point so if they need to quickly ramp up they have that headroom to do that um so, until, or the wind can certain, the wind and solar can certainly provide ancillary services. So, for example, if your your wind is um, at its max output, uh, you could you could technically back down the wind um, and be able to provide uh, spinning reserve using the wind. Um, uh, you can also um, do the same thing with solar. So, if your solar is producing, a, a, you could you could potentially back down uh... the output that you're getting from that uh... to to provide headroom um, if you're curtailing renewable energy uh... you know now technically that can be considered like spinning reserve so you're curtailing you're not taking the full capability so if you need it, if you're in a time of need um, then maybe that you could you know ramp up the their curtailed energy start allowing the system to, to take on that energy uh... and uh... you know provide that spinning reserve there
0: Okay. What are some of the key findings from the work in New York? You talked about some of the stuff in PGM, some of the stuff in Barbados. Um, you know, the, the big takeaway in, in New York, it sounded like, was that they got a lot more out of it than they thought they could. Well, what else did we find?
1: Yeah, so um, one of the uh, cool things that I think came out of that study is, uh, you know, we do full reliability studies using our, our program GE Mars um and um you know every every you run it for multiple years and you look at what the reliability of the system is and if you are meeting your reserve margin targets you know are you meeting the criteria of one day of loss in 10 years um so the the capacity value is important so how much capacity how much generation is there during the time of need um you know sometimes that's confused with capacity factor but capacity factor is the energy that's being produced over the year compared to how much potentially could have been produced um, so what, what came out of the New York study was a, what they call the approximate method. So, so system operators could um, you know, look at the, the, the wind and solar profiles over the peak months of the year uh, and peak times and then determine quickly what the capacity value would be. So how much of the renewable energy can be counted on during that time of need. So now most systems use that, uh, that criteria. PGM uses it, uh, ISO New England. Um, so that was that was kind of you know th- that was one of the early studies, and that really was one of the methods to help push along renewable integration um, throughout the other systems. Um, you know one of the one of the neat things that came out of the PGM study, because of the spatial diversity in the system they have and the, the operating changes they've already made, looking at the future and the increased penetration, um, we looked at how much additional regulation would need to be carried. So how much of that you know low generation balance, Ancillary service needs to be there, uh, and what we determined, even on our thirty percent case, where we're adding over a hundred gigawatts, you know, a hundred thousand megawatts of renewable capacity, uh, you only needed about another thousand megawatts of uh, regulation. So they carry about fifteen hundred megawatts for their load only. So the, the load variability. So adding up to a hundred gigawatts of renewables, you only need a thousand megawatts more. Uh, Which were turned out to be about one percent. So you know, uh, a lot of people think there's high integration costs with renewables, but you know, if you think about that, uh, it's it's uh, relatively low. Um, Another big thing that we've seen is that uh, you know the round trip uh, type study work that we that I talked about earlier. um, By doing that, um, you you significantly reduce the amount of transmission that's needed uh, to accommodate the the increased penetration, Um, and. um, you know, the the uh, PGM study showed that uh, um, if you looked at the amount of delivered energy and you took the total transmission cost and you analyzed that uh, and divided it by the amount of energy that was being delivered to the system, it, the transmission to get to the 14% penetration in PGM, which I think was about 60 gigawatts, 40 to 60 gigawatts, I can't remember the exact number, uh, but uh, it was about $4 a megawatt hour of delivered renewable energy. So. Uh, relatively low compared to the savings, the fuel savings they were seeing, which was roughly $60 a megawatt hour delivered energy, delivered renewable energy.
0: I think it's a really important point. So what's the takeaway? It just so it's clear for, for myself and for everyone else that's listening, does that mean that over that time period that you know the, the free cost of fuel effectively ended up offsetting the capital costs of investing in the transmission?
1: Absolutely. So. Uh, if you take out that $4 per megawatt hour, you are still saving about 50 to $55 megawatt hour fuel cost. Um, so allowing that additional savings to go pay for other type services or other, other upgrades to the system.
0: Oh, gee, that's great. It, it, there's clearly a lot of exciting stuff we found in our studies and the industry's up to some really exciting stuff from a technology perspective. I guess last question, uh, you know, looking ahead, what needs to be considered in the future so that we can continue to push the envelope with renewables integration?
1: Um, so uh, we talked about the incentives. So you know, having the right incentives out there to, to build uh, the the renewable uh, generation. Um, I think uh, having you know educating the, the governments, the the public utility commissions, you know, letting them understand that you know the integration isn't so bad as, as it's been seen in the past. Um, you know, a lot of grid friendly renewable uh, changes, technology upgrades uh, that that's become even easier. Uh, so you know, the incentives, the education, um, and really um, you know, just continuing to push the, the limit, you know, making the system changes to even go even further, you know, continue to study the, the system, uh, look at how it's performed in the past, and then could keep, keep looking at that in the future.
0: All right, it sounds like exciting times, and you know, we've been doing it for a while now, but there seems to be a bright future for it. Uh, and you know, it, coming at it for the next several years, knowing that there's not a hard limit, we've already figured that out, Uh, Sounds like there are some great opportunities ahead. Absolutely. Gene, thanks for the time today. Thanks to everyone for listening to this week's podcast, and we look forward to seeing you next, next time.